Hello, world. Hey. Hi. 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 Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of 2020 of Life with Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. So how were your holiday celebrations? As you guys know from the show, my 2019 was pretty busy, so I definitely enjoyed every second of these uh, two weeks off, and I definitely needed it, I'll tell you that much. So here we are, a new year, a new decade. Wow. I'm curious, what are some of your goals for this year? I would love to hear what it is that you're working towards, the challenges that you're having, how you are pushing through. Hit me up on social media. I would love to hear from you. Love to know what you're working towards in 2020. Kalia Neal is an extremely impressive and smart lady. In part one, she tells us how she hustled her way into an internship with Michael Moore's company, a leap that catapulted her to where she is today even if at the time it didn't seem like it. She tells us how she earned her stripes working at the Weinstein Company, pre-Me Too movement, and the wealth of knowledge she gained from her time at Focus Features. She eventually left to pursue the life of a true indie producer, and at the time of this recording, she was finishing up The Last Black Man in San Francisco, easily one of my favorite movies of 2019. Oh, and Obama's too. (laughs) It's been nominated for a ton of awards, won the U.S. Dramatic Directing Award at Sundance last year, and it is still, till this day, one of the best pitch decks for a movie I have ever seen. Recently, being back from the much-needed holiday break, I've been meditating on why. You know, this idea of why. Like, why this career path? Why choose something so challenging? Why this podcast? I mean, the real why any of us do anything. And while I don't have the answer just yet, I mean, if we're being honest, will any of us ever have the answer? I can say that one of my whys for this podcast was so that I could learn, learn from my colleagues, my mentors, my heroes. I want to learn as much as I can about everyone and their journeys in my limited time on this planet. And I want to share it with you in hopes that wherever you are in your path, especially if it's nowhere near where you want to be, that you realize that you are not alone. We are all in this messy life together. Oh, the music stopped a long time ago. That's usually my cue to stop talking, by the way. (laughs) So let's dig in and hear from Kalia. Thank you for doing this. This is so cool. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Of course. I haven't done anything like this before. So am, am I popping your podcast cherry? Uh, you are indeed. Oh my God. <laughs> popping my podcast cherry, yes. I popped another producer's podcast cherry, and it was a wonderful experience um, in my closet. That sounds like very wrong, but um, it was cool. It was cool. And, and I think it's similar to what we were sort of talking before I, I started recording, in that producers rarely get their moment in the spotlight. Yes, it's super rare. Um, you know, like... I can recall like wanting to sit on panels for movies that I've done and being told by like the publicity teams for those respective movies that, oh, people aren't really interested in hearing from producers like maybe the next festival or whatever, you know? Mm. So yes, this is a unique opportunity. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank (laughs) you so much. Well, take us to the beginning. How did you find your way into this crazy field? So I went to college at Howard University. Yeah. Um, Go Bison. Um, (laughs) And I actually went for journalism. Cool. And I thought I would work at a newspaper or like the New Yorker. Like those were my aspirations at the time. And I got into journalism because 
I thought that that was a space in place for me to tell stories, like to basically do an investigative form of journalism that would shed light on things that are happening in society that perhaps aren't getting a lot of attention. And so, and also just recognizing that media is the first gatekeeper of like stories. Mm -hmm. And so I interned at some like local news stations. I interned at MTV News. Okay. This is like (laughs) dating me. Now you know how old I am. (laughs) When MTV News actually had like a proper news like department. Yeah. And they had a whole segment. Yes. This is actually on point. Like it was on point. They had like the whole rock the vote before anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, all about like youth interaction. So I was in, in politics. So I was really interested in that. Um, But it was interning at local news that kind of turned me off, to be quite honest. And it's because you report a lot on like fires and rape and murder, basically whatever's happening locally. And it's all kind of bad news. Just fear. fear (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of fear based news. And so it was kind of like, okay, now I've told you like five people got murdered. Like, okay, now what? You know, I just felt like that wasn't as fulfilling in a way. Um, So I was feeling a little disenchanted by this career path. And then I happened to intern on Fahrenheit 9-11, Michael Morris documentary. How did you get that internship? So I saw Bowling for Columbine uh, in high school because my mom insisted. That was the one movie that she's ever insisted that I see in my life. And I loved it. And I was like, I'm going to college. I'm going to intern with Michael Moore somehow, some way. And so... (laughs) Already a producer in the making. <laughs> yeah, like, seriously. I'm my way. I was literally like, oh no, that's when internship I'm definitely getting. <laughs> and so again, dating myself, this is when 411 <laughs> was around and yeah. used to have to call 411 to get information. I called 411 probably for about six to eight months. I knew the name of his production company and I just kept calling, you know, New York, Dog Eat Dog Films. And they go, oh, sorry, this number isn't listed. And then out of the blue, one time I called and the number was listed. And they were like, okay, connecting you right now and connect me directly to his office. Oh, my God. And who did you talk to? What it was said? insane. I know. It was insane. I talked to Emily, who was, she was like the production manager, or production coordinator. And you could just like hear the chaos of that office in the background. It was like, oh, we do need interns. Oh, my God. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Hey, hey, what's your name again? Where are you? Could you get get up here in like two weeks? It was like, it was like chaos. <laughs> and that's how I got that, that oh internship. And then once I actually did get that internship and, and a part of my job sometimes was checking his um, generic email, you know, like hello at michaelmoore.com or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so many, there were, must've been hundreds of hundreds of people reaching out asking about internships. I was just like blown. I was like, I have no idea how this happened. It was just like destiny? pure luck. <laughs> yeah. Or destiny. Yeah. Um, but basically in working on that, um, there was a producer named Tia Lesson, who I love dearly. And she was just, I mean, she was just a badass woman producer. Like there's just no other way to say it. Yeah. Um, and she kind of took me under her wing and she helped explain a lot of things to me. They gave me a lot of responsibility. It was reaching out to um, production companies around the world so that they could tape basically B-roll of people on the street and asking the question, how do you feel about America? How do you feel about Americans? You got to remember this is at the time of 9-11 mm. and, and basically put that 
into a featurette for the DVD. So that became my job, like basically putting together that. so were together you overseeing that. the whole thing? Basically? I was overseeing the whole thing. And so at the time, that was like a big responsibility for me. This is my first yeah. time doing this. I'm still in college. Like I'm probably like 20 years old. But Tia helped me kind of through organizing all of that. She let me liaise about uh, with the legal team about certain things as they were trying to get clearances. Like she was just throwing real things at me, but not leaving me like hanging, yeah. yeah hanging yeah. she was really like helping guide me through the process mind you this is all like i know she's she's crazy busy she is crazy stressed like things it's a very small team and she has a lot on her plate but basically through through that experience i was just kind of like wow this is an incredible opportunity to tell stories in a way that i had not thought about before mm. So then the movie comes out, right? It goes to Cannes. It has like, I don't know, a 20-minute standing ovation. Comes out at the box office. It does like $120 million, which is insane. For, insane. For, <laughs> for a doc. A yeah. doc let alone, I mean, for a movie, let alone like a doc, yeah. right? A movie of, of that nature. Um, and so then it, it reframed the way that I thought about movies, which up until that point, I had honestly thought of as just like entertainment, not as a place that you can also educate and entertain. And I thought, huh, maybe I can do what I wanted to do in journalism, which was basically enter this space of being a gatekeeper of media, of images, of culture, of stories. Maybe I can do that in this medium and do it better. So that is basically what began the switch. Yeah. And then so once you realized that that was the next step, what did you do? Then did a little research, tried to figure out, do I have to change my major? Like, <laughs> who, you know, like, I this is knowing nothing, knowing literally not one person who works in scripted film. And so uh, through talking to like the career advisor at Howard, and just like literally looking online, like it was like, oh, I don't think you have to major in film, you can kind of just work in film. It's more based on your experience and not your GPA or where you went to college, etc. So then I just dove like, into interning in film. So I interned at the William Morris Agency. This is before it was William Morris Endeavor. I interned in New in, York. Uh, I actually interned in the London office. Oh, fancy. Very fancy. <laughs> Which was great. I mean, it's London. Yeah. <laughs> the office was right across the street from Topshop. Uh, <laughs> this is before Topshop came to America. Yeah. Um, and no, culturally, the work culture there was just different. Like, it was honestly not representative of agency culture here in the United States. Like, it's better? It's way better. Or at least it was at the time. Yeah. I mean, I hear Europeans have a better work-life balance somehow. I don't know how. Yes. They get, they get the same amount done, but they have some type of magic superpower. I don't know what it is. Dude, like 100% what you just right? said. Like somehow they didn't, their output wasn't much less in America, but they had total like work-life balance like in check. Like yeah. it was to the point like at the time, um, they closed the office for lunch. Everybody left at 1 p.m. every day from 1 to 2, including the receptionist. That's amazing. I wonder if it's still like that. Today. I know. I'm curious if it's still like that because yeah. it was a smaller office at the time. And I I don't know. They were just very nice and like encouraging and inclusive. Like yeah. they allowed me to sit in on pitches. Like they, they really thought internships as learning opportunities and wanted to be sure I, I learned Not a lot. Not free labor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I went to the Cannes Film Festival first and then went mm. and worked in London for like three months. And the Cannes Film Festival is great because it's like, 
it's the melting pot of the like global filmmaking community. Mm-hmm. So you really get to see like how big the, the industry is and how these international, I guess, considerations affect the movies that are being made in America, you know? And at the time, I feel like international was important, but not as important as it is certainly today now mm-hmm. that the whole landscape has changed a lot. Yeah. Um. So basically from there, then I graduate then I go to work in New York and my first job out of college was the Weinstein company so now talk about a culture shock (laughs) (laughs) I just let that breathe for a minute yeah just like pour some out for my yeah 21 year old self so talk about a culture shock uh William Morris being like the best work environment in London and the Weinstein company really being um I don't know, toxic <laughs> work environment. Yeah. It was also like a challenging time for the company that I was, when I was there, it was basically coming off the hills of separating from Miramax and bringing about this new company called the Weinstein Company, which was still finding its legs, was still trying to get its footing in the industry mm-hmm. and define like what type of movies they were doing. And nothing was working at the box office, you know, when I was there. And so I think it was a challenging time for the company. It was also just a challenging time because Harvey's a challenging person to work for. I think culture certainly filters from the top. And, you know, if the person at the top is kind of like putting a lot of pressure on the people, you know, his senior staff, his senior staff is then putting that pressure on the junior staff. And all of a sudden, like the mailman is like running around crazy because... (laughs) You know what I'm saying? He's afraid of for yeah. his job. Yeah, like, pulling his hair out. Like, yeah. oh, put the mail in the wrong thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally, like, yeah. if you breathe the wrong way, like, somebody might yell at you. Yeah. Like, Oof, it was so rough. It was a tough environment. Though, yeah. I will say I worked with a lot of good people. I mean, I think everybody is inherently very good. But like you said, if, if the tone is set from the top down, that this is how things are done here, you, you got to fight to survive and you want to keep your job. And especially if you maybe before you came to this job you were at a junior level and now you're at a senior level well you gotta you gotta step up and so you're gonna do whatever it takes and I think that makes you sort of erase a little bit that part of you that wants to be good and kind and loving and sort of collaborative with your coworkers. you know absolutely yeah I can go on a whole tangent about <laughs> this but I <laughs> Tune want in for episode <laughs> yeah exactly we'll have a, 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 like a sidebar a denim episode <laughs> yes um and only feeling like even okay to talk about it uh now that everything said people are not in the industry anymore so I only was at the Weinstein company probably like a year a little over a year just because I was like this isn't gonna work Um, but did you feel like you grew a lot in that time there I definitely learned a lot considering like I sent my resume online you know what I mean like that never happens. Like I sent it online. You seem to have this, this <laughs> luck if you, if you notice that. That was luck because I didn't know anybody who worked there. Yeah. You know, literally applied to a job online and their human resources reached, reached out. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's how foreign the industry was to me. Oh, and what's so cra- even crazier is when I was at Cannes, I remember I was with a group of interns we saw Harvey Weinstein from afar and they're all like, Oh my God. Like, I can't believe it. It's Harvey Weinstein. Ah. And I'm like, who, who is that? <laughs> and they like literally looked yeah. at me like blasphemy. Like, you don't know who Harvey Weinstein is. Like, I'm like, no, I don't know anything. You're like I'm gonna Google this. And yeah. then you like, just, I guess I'll apply. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I just, 
I literally just did not know a lot about the business. And so that year there was very helpful because it allowed me to kind of like fill in the blind spots that I had about this industry. Mm. And what did you learn? Like if you could distill it to... I mean, I learned in terms of process of even how to make a movie. Like I used to think like, oh, you, you have an idea. You like write a script, you go make your movie. You know what I mean? Like, not like, oh, we have 50 things in development. And like 30 of them are like, gonna get serious consideration. And like, all, you know, 20 of those will fall apart at the last minute for whatever reason. And like, basically, like one gets made, you know what I mean? Like, this entire process of which movies are made, I just had no idea how hard it is and how movies are not actually made. They're actually forced (laughs) into existence as the late producer Laura Ziskin once said and I've said that quote over and over again it's true um, because it is so true so like basically that forcing things into uh, existence and also honestly the way that Oscar campaigns are run Mm. I was um so naive that I thought you know, I don't know, there's this elite body of like 20 people who like vote on the Academy Awards. And it's all just based <laughs> and, on merit. Yes. And it's all based on merit and heart and, yeah. heart and yeah, what yeah. speaks to our souls. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. Like <laughs> money. All about money. Yeah. It's like it is a very deliberate and intentional campaign uh, to which you try to solicit and woo. And yes, like more so than like maybe the Grammys or no hate on the Grammys. Whereas like popularity just plays a huge part of those awards. So I'm not going to negate that some small movie as we've seen with like Moonlight and things like that Mm -hmm. can certainly get those types of awards, but not without a lot of, well, without the support of someone like a 24. Exactly. You just can't get there on your own. It's very expensive. It's almost like, you're, re, you're you're spending the same amount of money you spent to make movies at that budget level just on a campaign that has no guarantee of anything even happening. Absolutely. And it's an industry about lives and thrives off momentum. Mm-hmm. So like getting a movie through it, the system at the Weinstein Company has a large part to do with momentum. Once we get one element, we, we the train leaves the station and we have to keep going. Yeah. Any stalling jeopardizes the project's ability to make it through. So I did learn a lot being there. And I got some street cred because then <laughs> when I tried to leave the Weinstein Company, it was like, everybody's like, oh, wow. Oh, God. You worked at the Weinstein Company. You survived there. And you yeah. were on, a, you know, because I was on the production acquisitions floor, which is the same floor Harvey's on, which is a smaller floor. Like, so, yeah, I left there. I worked for a producer named Stephen Haft, who had Haft Entertainment. He produced the Dead, Dead Poet Society. Mm. And I went to him because I loved that Poet Society. I thought that was a brilliant movie. What I learned being there is that Hollywood is very what have you done lately. Mm. <laughs> that I did not know yet. Ugh. So even though he had had great success in his earlier years, he was kind of trending downward in his producing career. Yeah. And so Hollywood doesn't care that you like got an Oscar for some movie like 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. They just don't. Yep. So... He ended up closing his office, actually. And so that sent me to work uh, back with Tia Lesson. So when I first moved up there, to up there being New York, they being Tia and Carl, her husband, who was also a producer on Fahrenheit 9-11, were asking me if I wanted to come work on this documentary with them. 
But because I had already had documentary experience, I was very curious to get scripted experience. So I kind of put it off a little, but found myself kind of like not loving the scripted experience. How come? Um, because of just like the experience at the Weinstein Company and then with uh, Hafter Entertainment, neither of which went the way that I thought they would go. I was kind of like eager to go jump back into working with someone that I had a good relationship with and then would feel fully supported by. And not, that's not to say that Stephen Half wasn't. It was just, again, not necessarily being with him at a time that he was actually actively producing a lot of projects. Yeah. So that was great. Worked with them on the distribution of the film with Zeitgeist Films. And then was eager to get back into scripted. I'm like trying to remember. <laughs> was eager to get back into scripted. But I mean, at that time, you, I guess at, by this point now, you've seen all the different sort of roles that are created that exist on the behind the scenes of making a film, even from a company level. Had you sort of found your um, compass in that way where you were like, oh, I know I want to do this kind of producing or were you still finding it? I was still finding it, honestly. When I initially got into the business, I was like, oh, I want to be a producer. And then working at the Weinstein Company, you just get exposed to so many other jobs that I didn't know existed. So like the idea of the development exec You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I was introduced to that idea when I was interning at William Morris because of projects coming in and, you know, the people on the other side of that sometime being studio executives um, and just feeling like I didn't know enough about it. And honestly, as you start to develop relationships with a lot of other like assistants, people working their way up in this business, the development exec job at a studio is like the gold. Like that's the, you made it. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it started to feel like, oh, maybe I want to be a development exec because Mm -hmm. that's what everybody else wants to be. (laughs) Yeah. So that must be like where the real power is. And to a degree, that's accurate. It's the buyer. And ultimately, nine times out of 10, If you're making it, I mean, well, 10 times out of 10, if you're making a studio movie, you need some development exec to believe in what you're doing. But it's also like the lifestyle of somebody who is a development exec is like you are spending every waking hour reading everything known to man. I think a lot of people don't realize that. It seems very like, oh, my God, I'm going to like have a coffee and read a thing. It's like, no, no, you're reading like 10, 20 scripts a weekend and a novel. (laughs) And doing coverage for your boss, especially when you start out. So you earn your stripes for sure. And I, I never went down that path, but I also was like, ooh, everybody's talking about this. Maybe, yeah, maybe exactly. that's for me. And I had not gone the agency route at all. So I was very much um, not anywhere near that sort of pathway. But once I started to realize I had some friends who were inching towards that and I would see their lives and they could, could never do anything. And you're making very little money in the beginning. And so it's like, okay what is that quality of life then? Even if you make it to the coveted job, like what does that look like? Absolutely. I feel like I have that exact same awakening. One of the points of contention between filmmakers and development execs can be the lack of understanding what happens on set, Mm -hmm. to be quite honest. And I remember when I was working at Focus Features, this is me fasting forward, Mm -hmm. um, but the president of, Uh, production development at the time was John Lyons, who I loved dearly. Um, And he had worked as a producer 
not as a line producer, but as a just capital P producer before becoming a development exec. And he was saying like, you should, you need to get physical production experience. Like he felt, he was saying basically to me how he feels like having had physical production experience, not through line producing, but basically being a producer who works with line producers yeah. and knowing how to, he's like, I, I can't make the budget, but I know how to read a budget. Mm-hmm. And I know how to say like, That's this isn't, step. you know, this isn't enough. We need more here. We need more there based on his experience. And basically development execs who just stay in the studio system. Obviously, there are a ton of them. A lot of them are my friends who do great work. Um, but that can be a point of contention because there's just like a lack of understanding. Yeah. You know, like you don't know what you don't know. So he definitely pushed me like if you want to do any form of producing, you need to get on set because that's where so much of it, the movie happens. Yeah. <laughs> And you'll be able to do your job tenfold better if you can understand like what goes on on set. Yeah. So then I really wanted to get back in, into scripted after that experience and went to work for Gene Demanian. Gene Demanian used to be Woody Allen's producing partner mm-hmm. and they were best friends for some like 40 years, but unfortunately had a very public like Google, you can Google it falling out. Yeah. Um, but when I was with Jean, she was producing Broadway and she was producing film and she produced August Osage County on Broadway and she was producing August Osage County, the movie. I was there for part of the development of the movie, but left before the movie actually went into physical production. But working for Jean was great because theater was just like, that was all new to me too. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like you're in your twenties, like nobody can afford to go to Broadway plays every week. <laughs> like you just, it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. So working for Gene afforded me the opportunity to do exactly that. Go th- explore theater in a way that I had literally never done before. And I remember it's like theater is like this very closed, like small community of rich people. <laughs> I mean, there's just no more honest way of saying it. <laughs> no, I'll say on the producing side, not the creatives. So you have like the Schuberts, the Niederlanders, and I think it might have been one more that own like all of the theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it introduced me to playwrights. How cool though. <laughs> so I'm kind of jealous right now. No, so it was cool. a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I remember taking my then boyfriend, now husband to some shows and he was like, ah, oh, damn, like, I think we've been missing out. Like, <laughs> I think this might be my favorite, like, art form because the energy the electricity of like seeing Mm -hmm. it play out in the room is really interesting and honestly theater was the one thing that LA didn't have you know they they don't have a theater community quite like New York and so being introduced to all these playwrights who are you know trying to transition across mediums they're not just trying to be playwrights they want to write film they want to write tv too so developing those relationships with some of those playwrights who are looking to to make the jump into mm-hmm. TV film, which is more where I wanted to be initially, was also an advantage for me. Yeah. So then I had my friends who were working in L.A. calling me like, oh, my boss wants like playwright suggestions, you know, like, can you help me come up with a list of like five people? You know, it helped me kind of become like that person. Mm. And so I worked for Jean for two years. Um she was doing a lot of Broadway, but just not enough film. So I felt like I really wanted to do film, yeah. you know? So I, I felt like I had gained enough from the theatrical experience to know, like, exactly who the players were, how that game was played, and if I wanted to produce theater, how you would go about doing mm-hmm. so. 
Did you ever want to produce theater? You know, theater is a complicated art form to produce. It is a very close knit society. Okay, sorry. I'm like basically trying to figure out the most polite way of saying like, it's just rich old white people. (laughs) I don't think there's any, look, I think, look, my podcast is about authenticity and keeping it real. Right. I mean, I just didn't see how I could do that. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of like, I don't know if this is a world that I can kind of make my way through Mm -hmm. successfully. That is not to deter any other person of color, especially. Who wants to rise up. Who wants to rise up. Please. change the game. I mean, we need that. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Because honestly, most of the people of color who are producing in theater have come from film. There are people who've made a name in film and then they get attached to some of these kind of key marquee projects. Like I think there's a, a new Carrie Washington play that's going to Broadway, for example. And like Macro, I think, is like one of the producers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So at the time, I could not sort like Kalia Neal the young black woman producer, like how does she make her way in this space? And so I was grateful for what I learned about it and like the access to the creatives and talent of that space. But I just was like, I don't think this is for Mm. me. So you jump ship. I did jump ship. (laughs) And um, I went to work at Focus Features. Working at Focus honestly was my favorite work environment. It was, you know, James Seamus, who was a CEO and then, uh, Andrew Carpen, who was the co-CEO, um, had families. And so when we talk about the environment and like that culture being created at the top, you know, they were two men who had families who, you know, appreciated being home with their families for dinner sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> all in all, it was like a really great experience. And I was there almost three years. I learned a lot there. It, I mean, when you're working for the CEO of a studio, it's like, a bird's eye view of the business. Yeah. The best thing was seeing from the studio perspective, one, how projects get greenlit. <laughs> you know, what is this green lighting process that we speak so often about? Yeah. And like, so I literally like went to the financing department and was like, hey, can you walk me through a green light? What do they say? <laughs> You're like, tell us the secret. What's the secret? Yeah. I he mean, <laughs> honestly, after going through it, I was kind of like, oh, so this is just like a bunch of guesses. Okay, got it. Yeah, there's no formula. There's no formula. But it's basically like, based on a bunch of movies previously, we crunch numbers of these comps and we put in what we think we can make at home video, like basically every distribution uh, or every window, Mm -hmm. basically everything we think we can make at this movie at every stage from box office down to like TV rights. Ancillary rights. Yes, ancillary rights. When you see your movie, the movie on the airplane. (laughs) Yes, airplane, like all of that. (laughs) And it was like, yeah, it is kind of just guessing, but but strategic guessing based on what has been done before. There is like a bottom line number Mm -hmm. that you have to make in order for it to pass the test of green light. Right. At least that's how it was at Focus. That's how I assume it is at every studio. And some, I'm sure, like there's a version of it that's very similar. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I got to go to Cannes again and going as an intern versus going like with the studio, completely different experience. Mm. One, Cannes is a lot of fun (laughs) and you stay up drinking until 4 a.m. and somehow have to be in the office at eight. (laughs) But, you know, being able to talk to like the international uh, salespeople and distributors at that festival from that frame of reference was immensely 
helpful in understanding uh, the marketplace and culturally what role film plays in all these different territories very much has to do with what movies will sell in different territories, Mm -hmm. but also seeing the systemic uh, racism and sexism that exists in the international marketplace. We talk a lot about what happens domestically, um, but it exists internationally as well. And, you have gatekeepers of these countries who've decided that this country is not open to certain stories based on sex or race. And it is hard to say if that is actually true (laughs) or if you've decided that is true. So then you just keep perpetuating the lie, Mm. you know? Yeah. Um, So yeah, I learned all kinds of things working at Focus. Uh, The one thing that it wasn't was promoting me. Mm. (laughs) Now, mind you, I'm in my late 20s at this point, and I've been doing this for a long time. Almost a decade. Yeah, I'm frustrated. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I've made a lot of lateral moves to try to get a leg up in this business. Good jobs, like most people would say, good companies, good jobs. Um, But not anywhere that I felt truly empowered. A year before I left Focus, I was kind of like, okay, something is going to have to happen here. Or I'm going to have to start making things happen on my own. Like, I'm just tired and frustrated uh, and over this. Getting promoted at Focus was like somebody had to, like, die. Yep. It was, like, impossible. Um, so nobody died. <laughs> so <laughs> basically, I started putting together projects on the side. At that point, I had seen enough of the business to know, like, producing was really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a studio exec necessarily because I felt like, you're responsible for building a slate of movies, but not necessarily like making the movie. And I want to make the movie. I want to be closer to the day to day with the writer and the director in the trenches of getting the movie made. Uh, and that means also being like on set for production and like really overseeing posts, like all of it. A project that came into focus called An Illuminated Life, uh, which I'm still working on, um, <laughs> which is about J.P. Morgan's personal librarian who was uh, a woman achieving in the early 1900s when women were not even working. Um, And she was a black woman passing as a white woman to get by in society. Um, Fast forward, Focus ends up passing on the project. In the time I got to know them, they were like, why don't you come aboard? Like, you've been helpful. Um, So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And so we attached... Uh, Zoe Saldana to the project we we later would have a million attachments and unattachments but um, Zoe Saldana being the first piece um, a big attachment you know Um, and it was the thing that gave me the confidence that I could like do this you know like I know what I'm talking about I know Mm -hmm. what I'm doing I'm following my gut and clearly there's something here if we can get past Zoe Saldana's agents directly to Zoe Saldana for her to read it for us to set a meeting well how did you get past all the reps and all of that to get to her to get her attached a friend of mine introduced me to her agent the agent's assistant in true fashion read the script loved the script and really pressured her boss to read the script (laughs) (laughs) who then read the script and then got Zoe's team to read the script and then got it, you know, from the team liking the script, they got, they put it in front of it. Post Crossroads, but pre-Avatar? This is post-Avatar. Okay, post-Avatar. I was joking about Crossroads. (laughs) Just because, isn't it real? (laughs) Yeah, this is post-Avatar. So she's already like a star. And so, yeah, that was the thing that gave me the confidence that, 
I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and that I could do this. Um, and honestly, it was it was that coupled with some of the meetings that I was seeing James take, if I'm being completely honest, were people who were around my age who I didn't think had like some type of exceptional amount of experience. It was just like they thought they were capable and they just like started doing it and like nobody questioned them about it. And I was just kind of like, how are you having a meeting with the head of a studio? You produce one movie, you know what I mean? Like all because you've just put, you've taken the leap. You've, you've bet on yourself and you've bet wisely because you, you are achieving. So I was like, why not me? Mm. But yeah, so I, I I left and a part of me having the ability to leave was also I was producing a documentary called 25 to Life and that documentary, which went through the Sundance uh, Documentary Labs and also got a grant from the Ford Foundation. Like I did use a little bit of the money that we got from the Ford grant to pay myself in order to support me of course. in leaving. And I guess at this point, I do have a husband who's working that mm-hmm. also helps make this leap not so scary. Yeah. But I was also completely terrified. Like when I was like like my going away party at Focus, it was like everybody was just like, "Are you are you sure about this?" You know what I mean? Like, oh, independent producing like that is scary, you know what I mean? If you think that's death, like I'm already like dying at well, this What's desk. the worst that can happen, right? Yeah, you can exactly. do that for a few years, be like didn't work out and then go back to another company you already have a great resume under your belt and i think sometimes people they they want to come at things from a place of love but it's like their own fear reflected at them and so they can't help but be like injecting their fear onto you even if it's so well-meaning i think like parents do this friends do this sometimes like oh my god are you sure like you don't know oh totally instead of just saying yeah go leap see what happens and if it sucks we'll be there to catch you no absolutely a hundred percent I will say now it helps me more than hurts because I think people think it's a ballsy move. Yeah, it's a super ballsy move, especially when you've been going down a trajectory that's very safe and um, tidy in a way, you know, where it's like Mm -hmm. two years here and then you are two years there. And like, and a person who's just looking at you and judging you based on like a resume on a paper is going to create a version of who they think you are based on that piece of paper and that resume that you've you've accumulated but like you were saying it none of that stuff it was all leading up to who you were going to become but I think had you stayed you would have maybe become not just bored but a frustrated angry person who then never got to like spread your wings you know no absolutely a hundred percent I'm like, I might have been angry by the time I left. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you recognized it. Hey, I mean, some people stay in these jobs for a long time. And I think it's why it breeds so much cynicism. There's just a lot of um, like unfulfilled dreams. Oh, totally. Even if your dream is to leave a company and go try something on your own, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I work as an editor, but I actually want to be an actor. I think the people that just go the safe route. Um, inevitably find themselves frustrated at some point in their career. Yeah, no, absolutely. As like um, energizing as it was, it was like I was definitely terrified, but I was like, I don't know, like I'm already losing. You know what I mean? Like what's the the worst that can happen? Like you said, basically choosing this route of safety and comfort was just already losing for me. Yeah, well, you can't be a disruptor if you stay in the safe zone. Yeah, exactly. Especially with physical production and being the onset producer, it's like, well, you can't be in the trenches if you're 
in an air conditioned office getting right. you know production reports at the end of the day like you got to be in there in it with people it's a very different lifestyle for sure <laughs> it is a very different lifestyle and it and it hasn't been easy and like then personally things started things were crazy my father passed away probably 6 or 7 months after mm, I'm sorry I left focus no thanks it was a crazy ride you yeah. know and then like my father passed away in December 2013. By I'd say mid January, I was in of 2014. I was in Florida working on Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets, which was like the next project that I was doing, yeah. um, which was a, the Jordan Davis murder trial, which is a case in the vein of Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Um, young that's black a lot, kids. Though. That's a that's a tough subject matter to be working on. Dude, you're going through all of that. Yes. I mean, the only thing I can test to is the fantastic crew, like the yeah. director, Mark Silver. Amazing. I will work with Mark again in a heartbeat. He yeah. was just such a joy. Um, and Julie Goldman, who was lead producer, who was like in the documentary space, yeah. one of the best oh, yeah. to Julie's ever do it. <laughs> yeah. She's Hi, the OG. <laughs> we love you, Julie. We love you. <laughs> um, and so it was a difficult uh, journey, not only professionally, but personally. So what did you do in that in that meantime? Because that's what I love to talk about. From when you had your, your goodbye party and everybody's like, good luck. <laughs> you know, like, she's crazy. She's on something. So in that transition of that leap, what, what was your life like? How did you stay the course? Did you ever have moments where you were like, panicking and like well maybe I'll look just just to be safe I'll look for jobs that can apply or were you just like what was it like yeah it was <laughs> it was difficult on like all the levels like lifestyle wise like it was like oh my god I'm waking up I don't have to be anywhere like I'm in my pajamas oh my god I'm gonna watch Netflix for just an hour you know like that self-discipline of like being someone who works on their own and like not having an office to go to. And then it went into overdrive. Like by the time I I'm like, Oh, okay. I, I like have, I can do whatever I want. Okay. I'm going to work. But then because you're not going to an office to work, you're just opening your laptop to work. That's like all the time. So then I found that I was losing work-life balance mm. because work was whenever I opened my laptop and I could do that at 7 a.m. I could do that at 7 p.m. I could yeah. do that on Saturday. I could do it on Sunday. And so I found myself working more. Hmm. One, because you kind of have to, you're in an entrepreneurial space. Well, you're wearing multiple hats, especially in the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. Wearing multiple hats. You're basically an entrepreneur and things don't happen unless you do them. So, and there's a level of like hustle that just comes with that. Yeah. It's a, it's a grind. It's and a it, grind. And I, I, I am also in this freelance space and it, you have to be your own cheerleader and your own champion. And I think the hardest part is on days where things aren't aligning and things are not going and people aren't answering emails or people aren't returning your calls and just to keep going, you know, especially when you only have one main project that's happening versus multiple fires, fires in the iron that all need your attention at that moment. It's sometimes it's like, what? And you're yes. just like alone in your apartment at like 3 p.m. in your PJs. And like, <laughs> what is, this is my life. Yes. <laughs> you let the record show you were in my apartment. I showered an hour before you got here. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, I was working until I came here. And I only changed because I was like, I'm going to do running. And after this, I'm going to like get my life right. But the beauty of it, I, I find like when I wake up and I can be like, oh, I'm just so grateful. I'm not sitting in traffic, driving to some office. 
and I can just like start my morning and that hour that I would lose commuting, I can like meditate and I can do all of this stuff. And then sometimes you're like, oh, I have nowhere to go to and no one's like calling me or checking in on me. And if I don't eat today, no one cares. And I, you know, you don't walk to lunch with your coworkers. So there is, there is the pros and cons of it are, are good. But I think for me, it's been important to, like if I am going through these long stretches where I don't work, like I make plans to go have lunch with friends or I'll make plans to go do one social thing totally every few days so that I'm not just like lost in my own thoughts of like, what is my life? You know, because the minute I get on a production, then all of that goes out the window. Yeah. I, I almost feel like I live in these two completely diametrically opposed like extremes of life and reality. And my quest is like, how do I find the common ground between these two extremes? Because it's like... The ups and downs are intense. no you are spot on yeah it's insane it's like i either have an abundance of time or i have like literally no yeah. time at all yeah you're like six months where you don't do laundry yep. you barely see the person that you live with mm-hmm. and then you have so much time that you do laundry like multiple times a day yeah, exactly you separate the colors and the whites yes. like, this is lovely <laughs> exactly you know? yeah but yeah so it was it was rough And on that lovely note about laundry, we conclude part one of this week's episode. Please tune in next week and hear part two. Follow me on social media. I'm at Carolina Gropa. Show's at Life with Kaka. And hey, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and give me a five-star rating on iTunes or write a quick review. It really helps the visibility of the show. And since I am a one-woman band doing everything mostly solo, any help and support is appreciated. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.